All right, we are in Mark chapter 10, and the title of my message tonight is Not a Mistake, but it is Jesus Makes the Seeing Blind. And uh, we see at the end of this chapter, he makes a blind man see, but I want to show you something, though, that we are there's something uh, spiritually significant about that miracle, and I believe we kind of get a glimpse of that earlier on in this chapter, and so I'll kind of make the point of that when we get to the end of this chapter after we've gone through everything in here. Well, let's start reading in verse 1, and it says, because a lot of what I'm going to say right here, some of y'all might need some sight fixed, because there might be some of you that are actually kind of blind in here to some spiritual things, and, you know, because you think your sight's so good, you might struggle with some of these truths that we're going to hit tonight. I hope we don't have anybody here like that, but it's very possible uh, that we might have a Pharisee or two, and I, I hope not, but that could happen. And so it says in verse 1, it says, and he arose from thence and cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan, and the people resort unto him again. And as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation of God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh, so then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house of his disciples, and in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. So first thing I want you to notice is this question that they asked that is really a pretty normal and common question. It was one that they asked tempting Christ because it's almost, and and I'm speculating here, the Bible doesn't tell us for sure, but this question about divorce is one that comes up all the time because, you know, let's just admit it, some people... Their marriages were a mistake. You know, they married really bad people and they went out. Okay. Anybody ever gotten a bad deal before and you want to get out? Maybe a bad loan or something like that. But, you know, you got to do the right thing, right? It's the same thing with marriage too. But, you know, and I don't blame some people for wanting to get divorced. There's some people, if I was married to them, I'd be looking for the escape hatch. I'm I'm not going to lie about that right now. I'm not saying it'd be right, you know, but I'd be looking for the escape hatch. I'd be looking for that biblical loophole. I'll be the first one to to admit that. I might join the Ruckmanites if I had to. to But um, this is a normal question, but it was one they asked tempting him. And I think they were doing that because of the fact that there was in the law an allowance for divorce that was given. But it's almost as if they knew instinctively that there's no way Jesus is going to be for divorce. Because there's no doubt divorce is a bad thing. This is a problem. And so they're thinking, you know, there's no way he's going to say, yes, divorce is fine. But if he doesn't agree with it, then we can accuse him of going against Moses. And that's kind of how they did things a lot. But I think, though, to get a deeper understanding of this question and how loaded it was, I think uh, we need to go to Matthew where we have the same account or a different account of this same story. And in Matthew chapter 19... In verse 3, it says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife 
for every cause. So here we get a little more details about what they're asking, and they're asking if it's okay to put her away for every cause. Because in the in the law, we see the uh, example of fornication, how that was a reason for that bill of divorcement to be given. But here they're asking if it's for any cause, because it's like God gave that one allowance. Because of the hardness of their heart, God gave them one allowance. And so what did they do? They ran with it, and they you know made it about for everything. And what do women do today? Okay, if uh, their husband uh, you know did not commit fornication or adultery, oh well, he did in his heart. You know, I saw him looking at another woman, and therefore uh, I have grounds for divorce. You know, and it's like the abuse thing. Everybody likes to throw the abuse word around. And even though the man's never hurt the woman, well, he yelled at me one time and was emotionally abusive. We've all we all heard those people before. Listen, you can you can spin things however you want to make. Once people are bound and determined to do something wrong, they're going to just do it. Yeah, you can you can hit them with scripture all you want. It's not going to matter. They don't care at that point. But note, so notice how they mention for every cause. But let's look at verse eight. It also says, he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her, uh, which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, if the case of the man be so with his wife, it is good, it is not good, to marry, but he saith unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Now, again, what, we're, what I'm about to show you, it might, you know, make some of you a little cross-eyed when you hear this, but that's because. You're used to isolating passages and ignoring context and just taking the part you like and forgetting about the rest of it, which is what most people do. It's what most Pharisees do. It's what a lot of Baptists like to do when they're just looking for something to hit somebody over the head with, and you're not allowed to do that. You've got to look at the whole thing. You've got to look at the whole passage. We don't want to just, when Jesus is speaking on a subject, we just don't want to take one thing he says and say, okay, I like that, and then just run away and ignore the rest of what he said. Let's hear him out. Let's hear what he's trying to get across here. And in Matthew chapter 5, turn over to Matthew chapter 5, and verse 31, Jesus speaking about the same thing, about divorce. Look at what he says. It hath been said, in verse 31, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. So one thing that... People say often that's just foolish is, you know, they act like Jesus lowered the standard and like, you know, the law was real mean and hardcore. And then Jesus came along is like, you know, that stuff don't matter anymore. But actually, if you read the Bible, it's like Jesus raised the standard is what he did. And one thing, and we've talked about this before, some of the laws that we see in the scripture, this, these were not God necessarily saying this is just good and wonderful and holy and it makes me smile when you do it. It was just God making an allowance, God allowing them to do certain things, or God limiting the bad that they could do. You know, when he's given instructions and telling them they're not allowed to, uh, you know, 
beat their slaves over so many stripes. I don't think God was in heaven saying it's just a wonderful thing when people beat their slaves. I think he was trying to limit what they were doing is what we see going on. And it was the same thing, too, with divorce. I don't believe that when God allowed them to divorce, even in the one situation, I don't think God was up in heaven just smiling, saying, this is just holy, this is just wonderful, this is of God, when these two that have become one flesh are put asunder by man. I don't believe, I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe that makes a holy God feel good so here's the question, okay, because here's what we need to understand. All right, fine. Divorce is bad. I get it. I'll agree with you. Divorce is bad, okay? But how are we to handle situations with people who have a history of divorce or someone who's maybe marrying somebody uh, that is divorced and things like that? What do, what do we do? How do we respond to this? Well, here's a few things you need to understand. First off, a holy God hates divorce, okay? A holy God just, he doesn't like any sin. He hates all sin. Y'all understand that? He doesn't like sin, but and just because God permits or allows something, it does not mean he is pleased by it. Okay? You know what God wants? God wants reconciliation. God wants restoration. God wants repentance. That's what a holy God wants. And a holy God never lowers the standard. Y'all understand that? A holy God doesn't ever look at any kind of sin and just smile at it and say, this is wonderful, okay? I, I think we all understand that. But let's read a little more of Matthew. We can go through a lot of Matthew 5, but let's keep reading after verse 32 because I, I want you to get the mindset that you need to have. Because the other thing we got to remember too is permission and especially a blessing on anything sinful, it will always lead to people abusing the system and that was a major problem with these pharisees when they're asking jesus that question so look let's look at some things though because i think we're seeing where jesus is getting at when he's saying these things about divorce look at verse 33 again ye have heard that it's been said by them of old time thou shalt not forswear thyself but shalt perform unto the lord thine oaths for i say unto you swear not at all neither by heaven for it is god's throne nor by the earth for it is his footstool neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by the head. And it just go. And, uh, he's going on just talking about swearing, okay? Now, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, didn't they have vows and things that they would do? Didn't they have oaths and things like that? So why is Jesus speaking against those things? You know what he's doing right here? He's showing, listen, you know what God wants? God just wants our yea to be yea and our nay to be nay. The fact that we ever have to swear, you know what that shows? That just shows we don't trust each other. It just shows we're dishonest. You're, when you have to swear to something, you know what you're kind of acknowledging to somebody? That you can't trust what I say on just a normal day. You know, if I have to get up and I'm telling you guys about something, and I'm like, listen, folks, you know, I, I swear to you. Why am I saying that? I'm saying that because, you know, I'm putting a greater emphasis on what I'm saying now than what I was saying before. Shouldn't everything I be saying be truth? And so what Jesus is saying here is not so much swearing is a sin, but the thing is what he's saying here is just everything we say should be truthful. And let me tell you, a holy God does not like anything that is not 100% true. We all understand that. This is showing the mind and the heart of God. God's not going to put a stamp of approval on anything that's partially false. 
on something that's even a little wrong. God is only truth. We see he goes on to say, ye have heard that has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, wait a minute. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's in the Bible. That's in the Old Testament. I thought the law of the Lord was perfect. What's, what's Jesus doing right here? He's showing them what a holy God really wants. He goes on. He says, if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh of thee. From him that would borrow thee, turn thou not away. Uh, ye have heard that it's been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And he's just going on. He is just, he's raising the standard here is what he's doing. And so basically, God, you got to understand, God is never going to put his stamp of approval on anything that is unholy. But that does not mean complete holiness is required for us to have a walk with Christ. I mean, does, does, do any of us do these things all the time? Do any of us? You know, I mean, don't we sometimes, you know, retaliate when people do things that we don't like? Now, how many people we th- we throw out of the church for that? You know, how how many of us, you know, love our enemy like we're supposed to? It, you know, do do we throw people out of the church when they don't do that? Listen, a holy God does not like it when we hate our enemy. A holy God doesn't like any of these things. God is not going to justify your hatred for your enemy. He's not He's not going to get put his stamp of approval on that because if he does in any way, you know what you're going to do? You're going to abuse it, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we've just got to like walk around on eggshells and, you know, we be, we're all watching each other to check and see what everybody's doing. But you know what? We often do that very thing when it comes to people and it comes to situations with divorce. We often do that kind of thing. And I believe we need to watch out for that. You know, because we're never going to act like divorce and remarriage is a good thing because it's not. But you know what? I think it's okay for us to be merciful to those who are unable to receive that command. Because remember what he said there? When he talked about those who are able to receive it, he said after he's talking, the disciples, when they said, if this is true, if this is true, that it is never good, it's never okay for there to be divorce then they said, you know what, then we should just never marry. And you know what? That's the way a lot of Baptists act too. It's amazing how Baptists, they'll have more respect for the guy that's got a whole bunch of baby mamas somewhere than the one guy who has one ex-wife. You know, and it's it's amazing because, you know, with that, because it was a wife, there's that D word there, divorce. That's used. And we will. We'll give more grace and respect to the guy who didn't have the character to marry the girl, you know, maybe fooled around with a bunch of women, and but because he doesn't have that one word, that one sin, you know, we give him a pass on all those other horrible things, but we pounce on the one. That's not really consistent, is it? And I don't think that we're, I, I, I think people are missing the point when they make a big deal about these things. It's okay for us to be merciful. We're not going to act like these things are okay. Just like, for example, you know, we're not going to throw somebody out of the church, you know, if he comes and he confesses that he looked at a woman to lust. Okay, that's a sin, isn't it? Does God put a stamp of approval on that? 
Is God okay with people committing adultery in their heart? No, but we're not going to throw them out of the church for it. You know, they, they obviously shouldn't do that kind of thing. But at the same time, notice, again, notice what he said in verse nine, or Matthew 19. After the disciples said, it's just good for man not to marry. He said, all men cannot receive the saying, save they to whom that it is given. And then he goes and he starts talking about eunuchs. Okay. Now, I think, most, you know, I don't, think, I don't want to be a eunuch. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't think most divorced guys want to be eunuchs. Oh, so you're saying they should just get remarried? I'm not going to act like a holy God, you know, is okay with that. But I also understand, though, that God is merciful. And if they're not able to receive it and they do that, I don't, I'm not going to beat them up for it. And I'm telling you, you know, I, I think we got to be careful with just how mean we are to people in these situations. You know, there are... Um, you know, there's a lot of situations that people didn't really ask for that they got in. And it's like, Baptist, man, we just chew these people up and we spit them out. And just, I, I don't think that's a good attitude. They have, I don't think that's what God was looking for. And I think when we look at what Jesus had to say about divorce, if we would actually read the whole passage, we'd realize, you know, we're kind of missing the boat on this thing. You know, and uh, we're never going to act like it's okay. We're never going to say, this is not a sin. But... We're not going to act like we all go through every day not sinning too. And I think we need to be kind to those who are not able to receive that uh, some of those things and want to live a life as a eunuch. It's just not going to work for most people. And uh, I, I get it. And so you say, well, you know, you're really liberal. Uh, you're really, you know, whatever. you know what? I, I've been married to the same woman for almost 20 years. You know what? I behave myself, and you know, call me whatever you want. And I, I don't condone, I don't condone divorce. I do not. You know, the uh, church, churches that I've been involved in have always been churches that just bear. I mean, divorce was an extremely rare thing. And I wish I could say that you know nobody that's ever come to this church has ever gotten divorced. Uh, nobody or in my old church, but I will say it's an extremely rare thing. And you know, I'm against it. I don't like it. I'll always say bad things about it, but I've never been mean to divorce people. I've never treated them like second class citizens or anything like that. And you know what? It's just not a common thing around here. And I hope it stays that way. But for some reason, some people feel like they just got to beat everybody down all the time. It's like, why are you jealous? Are you jealous that they got divorced and you can't? I mean, is that, is that what your attitude is? That's what it seems like with a lot of people. It's like, well, they can get divorced. I can get divorced, too. See, and, and you see, I think that's one of the reasons, too, you know, God never does put a stamp of approval on it anyway, and neither are we, because that's how a lot of people would be, and I think that's just the wrong attitude, but we need to keep going. I, I thought about preaching just a whole message on this subject, too, because there's more we can cover on that, and again, let me just be clear. I don't think divorce is ever a good thing in the eyes of a holy God. But I think when it comes to how you respond to other people, you can keep your cool, mind your own business, and live your own life and deal with your own marriage. Does that make sense? Okay. So anyway, verse 13 says, And they brought young children to him that he should touch them, and the disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Verily I say unto you, 
Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. It's hard preaching through the book of Mark because like almost all these things, I want to preach a whole sermon on it. But right here, this is proof young children can get saved. And being young is the best time to get saved. There's clowns out there that are teaching that you should discourage your children your young children from making professions of faith at young ages because they don't have enough sins to repent of yet. And a lot of times, too, people blame the multiple conversions because a lot of kids who grow up IFB, they make 14 conversions by the time they graduate high school, and then they make two more when they're in Bible college. Right? And and people blame that on us just doing this easy believism, quick prayerism, you know, just making these little kids say prayers. No, you know where the confusion comes from? The confusion comes from bad preaching. The confusion comes from you desperate to get your altars filled, to get somebody saved during the revival meeting when only people that are at your revival meeting are church members, and you preaching dumb stuff, confusing people on their salvation. That's why you have people getting multiple conversions in your church. That's another sermon for another day, but I'd love to preach about that right now. And I'm telling you, I think most of these, these uh, people who made multiple professions, if they ever got saved, it was when they were real young. And if they didn't get it when they were real young, they probably still don't have it. I'll tell you this, when I hear their testimony, and their testimony is when I was you know, 25, you know, after my 17th profession, that's when I finally repented of my sins and I declared Jesus Christ Lord of my life and I was going to devote my life 100% to him. And I basically purchased my salvation with my discipleship and my offering of my life and service. And they don't say it like that, but that's pretty much what they're saying. I'll tell you what, they're not saved then. If they didn't get it before, they still haven't got it. And these people that are out there uh, discouraging parents from, uh, you know, leading their, you know, their kids to Christ and uh, letting them make a profession at a young age, I think are possibly destroying their children's soul. God may be merciful, and they may make another profession later, but I think chances are they're not going to. And uh, do not forbid little children to come to Christ. Don't Do not do that. Verse 17, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. Man, and this guy loved this. Jesus gave him a list, and everybody loves the list. All Pharisees love the list. And he gave him one, and this guy said, man, I've done that. He said, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about, and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again, and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it? For them that trust in riches to enter 
into the kingdom of God, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, what blows my mind about this passage is I have heard Ruckmanites actually teach that this proves that it was salvation by faith plus works in the Old Testament. And it just, it, it blows my mind that because look what Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't say, believe in me. He said, go sell everything you had. Like, but wait a minute. We've got a guy here who's kept all of these commandments. And the only thing he, he, he only lacks one thing, selling everything he has, giving to the poor and following Jesus. If that's what they had to do in the Old Testament to get saved, can somebody tell me who got saved in the Old Testament? I'll tell you who got saved in the Old Testament. Nobody. What was Jesus doing? Jesus is showing them, this man, that he was a sinner. He didn't love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And not only that, he was not trusting in Christ. What did Jesus said? He's trusting in riches. Now, how do you trust in riches to get you to heaven? Okay, that, that doesn't really make sense, does it? Trusting in riches to get you in heaven? You know, some of you, how many thought you, when you got your stimulus, you thought you were closer to heaven as a result of, you know, <laughs> you know nobody, nobody thought that. But what, what's it talking about here? It's because these people thought because of all that they had and all that they were doing and all that they accomplished, that that somehow made them righteous and made them saved. They were trusting in their works and they had a lot to show for it. It's a lot easier for somebody, you know, because for, for example, too, you might, you can have a lost person who uh, believes in a work salvation that is poor. Okay? They're poor. They don't have anything. But at the same time, that one, they usually figure out quicker that, you know, I need, I just need a savior because they know they can't do anything. And so it's a lot easier for them to get humble. And that's why we see poor people get saved a lot more than rich people. Where those rich people, they get really lifted up with pride and they think, you know what, I can do this. I can achieve this. I've achieved all these riches. I have all this going for me. Surely the Lord is going to want me. That's their attitude that they have. But people who have that kind of attitude, they do. They have a very difficult time humbling themselves. And that's the problem with this guy. He wasn't trusting in Christ and his righteousness. He was trusting in his own works. He was trusting in his riches. And therefore, he was not saved. Even though... This was a really, really good guy. So the fact people would teach that, you know, to prove an Old Testament, you know, salvation that it was by works is just missing the point of this entire passage. But let me tell you, though, you know what the problem was with this, this particular individual here is he was blind. These Pharisees that Jesus is talking to, they are blind. There, there are certain things that they are seeing. You know, they knew law, certain laws. They, they had their list. They knew how to read those things. But they were missing the point of everything. You know why? Because they were blind. And it's something Jesus did to them, too. We'll show you that here in a little bit. But verse 26 says, They were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And this showed their hearts because their attitude, if a rich man can't get saved, then who could? It just shows they were trusting in riches and works, too. That was just kind of their attitude. That was their thinking. And it says, And Jesus looking upon them saith, With men it is impossible, but, with, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Listen, it is impossible with man's efforts for anyone to get saved. Now, we all get this, but this crowd didn't. Okay? Your efforts 
could never purchase your salvation. They could never earn you your salvation. With man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Meaning, when God is with us, when God is working for our salvation, then all things are possible. You know what that means? Anyone could get saved. Anyone could get saved if God's with them. And how do we get God with us? How do we get God to work with us? You know what we do? We trust in him. We make him our high priest and and let Jesus Christ be our mediator. We trust in him and then he gets the job done. And you know what? We're saved. Just like that. It's impossible with our own efforts, but with God, all things are possible. That's what he's talking about there. So verse 28 says, Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. Hey, that one guy, he didn't want to leave everything that he had because he had great riches. Okay, Now the disciples, you know, they had some things. They had their fishing equipment and their boats and things, and they left those things, didn't they? So they left what they had and followed Jesus. And so it's like Peter's, you know, he's thinking, well, you know, we didn't have as much to give as that guy did, but we did give what we had and we're following Jesus. So we're good, right? And it says that Jesus answered and said, verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life, but many that are first shall be last and the last first. Jesus is showing them that their labors will be rewarded. The works that we do after salvation, those will be rewarded. You know why? Because salvation's free. If you give your life over to God afterwards to be his disciple and follow him, you know what? He pays us for it. Okay? It might not be until his kingdom, but he's going to pay us. He's going to reward us for those things that we did. But he says, but many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. So Jesus is showing that we will probably be surprised by who is the greatest in the kingdom of God and who is least. Because when it comes to salvation, we're all getting in the same way. No works involved. It's all through faith. You know, we're going to have eternal life too. But those who do the work, that will determine where they are in God's kingdom. And, you know, and so when he made that statement, many that are first will be last, last will be first. I think he's just, he's just kind of warning these guys, you know, I don't judge the way you do. You know, if we were all to rank who's going to be the greatest to the least, I guarantee it, you know, our list would not line up with God's list. We don't know. And that's why we just need to make sure we're doing our own thing and doing what God wants us to do. But the disciple is going to be rewarded for their discipleship, just like everyone else. But the salvation part, completely free. So verse 32 says, And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him and scourge him and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. This is the fourth time they have been told about the death of Christ and his resurrection, and this time he's given great detail as far as what all is going to happen. You know, they're going to, He's going to be scourged, spit upon, he's going to be mocked, he's telling them all these things, but you know what? They still don't get it. You know why? 
these guys had a seeing problem here. There was a real seeing problem going on. And make sure you, you keep these things in mind. So it says in verse 35, And James and John, the son of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we should desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They say unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. Now, we all know from other accounts of this same story that they did this in kind of a you know cowardly way through their mom. Their mom is the one that they kind of used uh, to, to do this here, thinking maybe you know Jesus, he, you know, he couldn't say no to a mother. Uh, maybe their mom was a real sweet lady while these guys are the sons of thunder. It'd be easy to tell them no, but not their mom. I, I don't know. That, that might not be the motivation. You know, it could have been one of these just real ambitious moms where she was, like, pushing them <laughs> to that, too. I, I don't know. But, uh, but either way, we all know that that's kind of how that went down. But it says, but Jesus said to them, ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, we can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and said unto him, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So James and John, their motivation, uh, it was not right. You know, it, was, it wasn't right in the situation, I don't think, for what they were asking. I don't believe it was necessarily a horrible thing for them to ask for. But Jesus knew that they didn't understand what they were asking. You understand when you, uh, I, I don't think they realize when they're saying, when they're coming to Jesus, say, hey, we want to sit in your right hand and left. I mean, that's a high honor, isn't it? But Jesus, when he brings up that cup that he's going to drink of, you know, he understands that these, hey, you guys still don't get it where this is going. You do realize, I'm going to be killed. They are also going to want to kill you. He said, you are going to drink of the same cup that I drink of. That's, that's what he's warning them up here. And a lot of times, too, people, they don't realize what they're asking for. You know, there's people out there, too, who they, they really want to be a pastor. You know, they're, they're you know, maybe new Christians, and they're real anxious and excited. And they think being a pastor is just getting up behind a pulpit and letting it rip. And a lot of times, you know, you just kind of have to warn these people. It's like, hey. This is great that you want this, but I don't think you do want this. <laughs> you know, there, there's, probably, you know, there's some things that you might not realize that are involved with it. There's some challenges. You know, it's not, it's not all that you think it is. And Jesus knew that with these disciples. When they're asking him this, it wasn't that they were just ready to suffer, which is what it's going to mean. The closer you are to Christ, the more like Christ you are, the more you're probably going to suffer. That's just the way it is. That's how it was for Paul. We would all agree the Apostle Paul was probably one of the most, the most Christ-like man that there ever was, and he suffered greatly. And, and what did he say? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. A lot of times people say, I want to be a good Christian. 
I want to be like Christ. But they don't realize what they're saying. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing to want to be that way. But are you sure? And, and I think that's what Jesus is doing right here. He's just trying to warn these guys and just tell them, hey, this isn't you know, what you think it's going to be. And then he kind of gets on them a little bit because they wanted to sit on his right hand and left hand, meaning we're the number two and number three guys. And you know what? If Jesus would have said granted, those two probably would have been fighting over who got to sit on the right hand. You know, that, that's just the way we are. But the thing is, their motivation is they wanted that lordship. They wanted to be above their other disciples. They wanted that high rank. But Jesus said, you know what? That's what the Gentiles do. That's what the Pharisees do. Everybody else does that kind of thing. He said, it's not going to be that way with you. Whoever's going to be chief among you, let him be your servant. The Son of Man didn't come to be ministered unto. He came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And we've got a lot of people, even in the independent fundamental Baptist world, that they are creating like these hierarchies. They're always looking for these lofty titles that they can give themselves so they can exercise coming on some kind of lordship and act like they're over people. I mean, you've been amazed at some of the pastors I've known in my life that have literally tried to tell me what to do. It's like, um, first off, you didn't set, you know, you didn't even send me out of your church. You know, I'm pastoring an independent church. And you, what are you going to do? Stop, not invite me to preach at your camp meeting? I don't care. You know, but they they have that attitude. And, and tell, let me tell you something. These guys, we call them popes. And they're in, there's a lot of popes in the IFB. You would be amazed at how many people listen to everything they tell them to do. It is crazy. I mean, I, I've known people, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean. You know, we tried doing a conference one time, a long time ago, uh, on a certain subject, and there was one pastor friend that was kind of heading it up, and one of the popes heard about it, and he wanted to help. And unfortunately, he did not consult any of the other, us others that were working with him on it, and that pope said, this is what, this, you, you need to do it here at our church, and sure enough, he's like, okay, let's see. And then the Pope just took it over and destroyed the whole thing. He just completely sabotaged the whole conference and completely failed. First thing we had, that pastor had to do is call up one of the preachers that we had all anxious to have come because he helped all of us a lot in our church plant. And he had to tell him he couldn't come because the Pope didn't like him. I mean, it was just, it's pathetic. And it was just like, why did you even tell him about it? And people do, they, they listen to these guys, and, and when you don't, man, they blacklist you. They come after you. It's crazy stuff. But folks, that attitude is not new to this world. It has always been around, but you know what? It should be foreign to Christianity. You know what we should, we are brothers. The Apostle John, he referred to himself as your brother and companion in tribulation. He finally figured that out. When he was the only apostle left, okay, who would be who would we consider the head honcho in the church at the time when John's writing the book of Revelation? No contest, John, the beloved disciple, would be the guy. But what did he do? Well, he didn't call himself John, the beloved disciple. He didn't call him the disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't call himself the disciple who laid on Jesus' breath. He didn't. He didn't say the 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 only living apostle. You know what he called himself? your brother, and companion in tribulation. It's a great lesson to be learned there. But a lot of Baptists have not figured out. And they need to get over themselves. But verse 46, 
And they came to Jericho, and he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when they heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace, but he cried the more a great deal, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Now here's another example of Jesus healing a blind man. And again, every time Jesus never used the same method for healing a blind man. It was always something different. This time he didn't even touch the guy. He just told him, go. Your faith has made you whole. And so there is no doubt that this healing of the blind man, I believe, is a picture of salvation. Because earlier in this chapter, we have a rich man who was blind to the truth of the gospel and who Jesus and who Jesus was. He did he couldn't even see that, you know, I'm a pretty good guy, but here he is in the presence of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't realize he's a sinner. I mean, you would think when you're in the presence of Jesus Christ, you know, he wouldn't, you know, you would figure out something's wrong with you. But, you know, he couldn't see it. He was, he was not able to see that. We see earlier in the chapter, we've got these Pharisees asking tempting questions about Jesus. They're always asking him these different questions, you know, just trying to trip him up, trying to, uh, trying to uh, tempt him, trying to get him in trouble asking questions too, making a big deal about their traditions and even some laws just so they could hit people over the head with things, just so they could, you know, dominate and so they could control people. And these, and these Pharisees still incapable of seeing that they were sinful. They couldn't even see the fact too that they had abused this divorce bill that Moses had given. They couldn't even see that they were completely out of line and how they were handling it, how they were interpreting that verse just because of one area where God made an allowance for a divorce, even though God wasn't really for it, God gave them an allowance in one area. But what are they doing? They're doing it for every cause. What's going on here? You know what the problem these people had? They were blind. Spiritually speaking, they were completely blind. They were unable to see the truth. And I'm telling you, this is something that God does to people. Look what it says in John chapter 9. This is in another story where Jesus heals the blind man. And it says in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Uh, when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I am come to this world, that they which see not might see, and they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. And basically what we see going on here, and one thing we see throughout the Bible, is that people who just refuse to have faith, people who will not submit to the righteousness of God, people who will not believe and trust in Jesus Christ, 
we see that God blinds them to things. There are certain truths that they are not capable of seeing. And often as saved Christians, we look at scriptures and we see how clear they are and we try talking to other people. It's like, how can these people not see this? I mean, do you know how to read? And yeah, they know how to read, you know, academically speaking, but they're blind. They're blind. They can't see the truth. Their eyes need to be open to the truth of the scriptures. And here's what's amazing. You've got a lot of Pharisees out there that they are capable because they have the ability to read words on paper and they're able to read all these things that are sins and then tell you everywhere where you are wrong. But you know what they're not able to do? To see where they are wrong. It's like these people, these Baptists too, who go to Matthew 5 and they're real good at seeing where you are wrong and where you are out of line because of divorce or something that's in your life. But you know what? They, they miss everything else in Matthew chapter 5. They miss everything else from the Sermon on the Mount. Man, they really zero in on that one thing and they act like they're really spiritual because of it. But at the same time, it's like, how do you not see the rest of that chapter? How is it that you can read the Sermon on the Mount and all you're really getting out of it and all you're hardcore on is the one sin that you don't have in your life? You know what the problem is? See, in seeing, they're still blind. They're able to read what the Scripture says, but they're not seeing the truth. They're not seeing themselves anywhere in there. And I believe it's because God is blinding them to these things because they just they don't want to have faith. They are trusting in their own goodness. They are full of themselves. And I'm telling you, folks, one of the, I think one thing that will blind you as a as a person, or even even as a Christian. Okay, I believe that we can have blindness to a certain extent as Christ, as Christians. In other words, when you get this self righteous attitude, you know what's going to start happening. You're going to get real good at seeing other people's sins, but you're going to be blind to your own problems. And that's why. You just you can go online too. You can go on some of these characters on Facebook that are just the meanest, nastiest people in the world, just condemning everybody to hell, reprobating everybody. And you look at you look at their lives, and it's obvious that they're scumbags. It's so obvious that they're scumbags. But man, they are hardcore on this one issue. Yeah, I'm a dirty, rotten so and so. I don't pay my child support. You know, I've never even been, had enough character to actually marry a woman that I slept with. But I'm hardcore against divorce, and I got the right gospel. And I go soul winning every once in a while at the marathons, you know, for the photo ops. And I am totally qualified on just slamming good men of God and just creaming everybody else and nailing everyone else's hide to the wall. You are blind. You're blind to the truth. When you read your Bible and all you're seeing is what's wrong with everybody else, you're blind. You need to ask God to help you see. You need to be like Bartimaeus here and you need to cry out for God. And when people tell you to stop, you need to just cry out even louder, determined to get to him, saying, Lord, help me see my own problem. Listen, and when you, when you read Matthew chapter 5, and it, I mean, that should make you more merciful and more gracious to other people. Reading the laws of God should convict you and make you be a lover of mercy. But it doesn't with most people. 
How is that? How can people who supposedly read through their Bible just be so down on other people, be so mean to other people? How is that possible? You know what it is? It's blindness. That's what it is. It's blindness. They can't see what's wrong with them. Just like that rich young ruler, he couldn't see what was wrong with him. Man, I've, man, I've nailed all those things, Lord. I've kept all these things. Missing, missing the point. The first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his possessions more than he loved God. He couldn't even see that he was a violator of the first and the greatest commandment. He wasn't, he wasn't able to see that. You know why? Because he was blind. And I'm here to tell you right now, if you if you're not willing to have faith, if you're not, and if you're going to be one of these people like a Pharisees, just down on everybody, just always picking on other people, God's going to blind you. God will give, God will take your sight and make it turn it into darkness, and you will be blind, and you need to get over that. And there's some people out there they need to repent big time in dust and ashes. Begging God to give them sight again. And listen, if that's you, if every time you read your Bible, you know, you do, you just, it just makes you think about other people and their problems, you need to pray God gives you sight. Lord, help me, help me see myself here and stop seeing everyone else. It's amazing, too, how some people can just tie every negative thing in the Bible to an individual. So it's like, it's like they, everything they read in their Bible, it takes them to this one person. It's like, dude, you, you need therapy or something. You need some help. I don't know why people can't see this person just a scumbag and a scoundrel. I mean, the Bible just all is, is full of stuff about this individual. Uh, I'm sorry, man. So, something's wrong in your head. You need help. Every post they do online... Just bashing people. And I, I'm so sick of that attitude. People like that. There are some truly toxic people in Christianity. And they they are absolutely disgusting. And I want to stay as far away from them as I can. And I think God wants to too. That's why he blinds them. I want to blind them so these people get, lo- get lost. <laughs> and get away from me. Because they're just so repulsive. Such horrible people. And I'm telling you, I think the more you know about the Bible, the more laws you know and the more you understand, I think the nicer you'll be to people. That's what I believe. And there are some mean, mean people out there. No mercy, no love. I, you know what I see? I see a blind man. And everyone hates a hypocrite. And that's what people, everyone sees when they see you. They see a hypocrite. That's all you are. Uh, I, I had five people like my you know, comment when I was reprobating that guy. Yeah, it's because those five people that like that comment are also blind, and they just hate the person you reprobated already. And they like hearing your opinion come out of, or their opinion come out of your mouth. So get over yourself. You stink. And on that pleasant note, we'll close, we'll close the word of prayer. So, Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and uh, the mirror that it is in, in our life. And dear God, I pray You'll uh, give people some sight, Lord, when they are, read their Bible. Help them to see themselves, Lord. If they're, if they're reading their Bible and all they can see is other people and what's wrong with everyone else, dear God, I pray you will just remove the scales from their eyes and help them uh, see their need for a Savior. And I pray, Lord, that you'll just uh, help us to just uh, clean up our own act and be more merciful.